morning. Happy um, Sunday, second hour. How are you? Yeah. Phil's here. It's good to see. You. Phil's the uh, we call him the the patriarch of East Atlanta. So he he, he moved in before it was cool. Um, <laughs> um, I hate to call you out, but we have Beth and her husband uh, Daniel here, for, all the way from Germany. Beth's one of our missionaries that we support. So, yeah. And um, they're campus pastors at University of Tübingen, which is uh, old, right? Didn't like Martin Luther tailgate there? Like, that's a pretty old. <laughs> he tailgated. Uh, so, um, I don't know where I was going with that, but welcome. <laughs> I have some notes here, if you would, Isaiah chapter 9. Um, we have been moving through... The four names that uh, Isaiah gives in verse 6. And um, those names really... And the, the difficult thing with this passage is that it's surrounded by all kinds of story, all kinds of um, context. And we just, in a sermon, we just don't have time uh, to get into all of that. Although I would love to, I just, we would end up being quite uh, bored and bogged down. However, what I've tried to do, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, this series has been... I've sort of been a frustrated preacher during this series because I love the text, and when that happens, I, I end up getting into all sorts of rabbit trails. And so if you have survived some of these sermons, you, you, you owe yourself a, a, a dinner somewhere. But um, all we've been trying to do is move through each of these names. If we can bring them up on the screen, uh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and really try and engage with... What is Isaiah saying about the work of God? This is obviously about the restorative work of God that's going on. But in a bigger sense, uh, these names and titles are really best seen as descriptions of the conditions of life when God has the wheel. And when God is in control of all things, um, this is what we end up with. We end up with someone who is wonderful in counselor. In counsel, he's mighty. He's a mighty God. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, he's an everlasting father, and today we'll talk about Prince of Peace. Um, some Old Testament scholars, both in the Jewish family and then in the Christian world as well, they, uh, they interpret this, or they rewrite this a little bit, so it makes a little bit more sense to us. It's not just a list of names, but they will say something like, um, um, a wonderful counselor is the mighty God, and the everlasting father is a prince of peace. And that is a great way of reading it because it just puts it all together. And I think in Hebrew, the word is is somewhat understood. And so that's a safe interpretation. Um, And the two middle terms, mighty God, everlasting Father, are the two divine pieces in here. Wonderful counselor. I mean, Isaiah is speaking these words into um, the, the the southern kingdom of Judah, who at the time had a terrible king, a terrible leader. Um, and that's all we'll say about that. And they were in desperately, desperately wanting a change of leadership. Uh, they want to vote the guy out, right? And so when he says to, unto us a child is born, a son is given, it's this language of like we're getting a new king, and he's going to be better than the king we have. Um, but the problem is, the tripwire in the prophecy is that Israel is not in the habit of calling their kings gods. Uh, that's a big fail for Israel. Um, the other nations deified their leaders, but not 
not Israel. In fact, there's a story where Jesus is in, uh, having this conversation with some faithful Jews, and they bring him some money, and they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And it's a, I guess it's a legitimate question um, that we all probably ask. <laughs> should I really be paying for that? Um, the stoplights don't work anyway. So, um, and there's a lot of story with that question. There's a lot that goes into that question. But one of the things that, uh, that caused him to ask that was simply that uh, the Caesars were seen as gods. Do we, pay, do we pay tribute to, do we openly submit to uh, basically idolatry? And um, so we sort of trip over this mighty God and then this everlasting eternal father. And um, so it's a really beautiful sort of list of names and descriptions of who God is and how he's working in the world and so on. And so when Isaiah sit, spoke these words and people heard them, not only was it a great promise, but it was definitely a confusing one. Uh, because no king, even on his best day, is a wonderful counselor, at least not for more than 20 minutes, you know, uh, at least not eternally. So a wonderful counselor is a mighty God. The everlasting father is a prince of peace. Today we're going to talk about the prince of peace. And for me, what has helped illuminate uh, the peace end of this, because I want to warn you that this is a little bit of a troubling uh, a title, because uh, you'll see in a moment. But what has helped me sort of put these words together in a way that has helped me is that the mighty God, a mighty God, is obviously an everlasting God. He's eternal. Uh, The resurrection, which we'll talk about at the end, is among many things a statement that I I beat death. I overcome death. And that's, you can put your trust in somebody who can do that. But the Prince of Peace for me comes, and this again is just for me, it's not necessarily uh, how they would have heard this perhaps, but if God is a wonderful counselor for me, that, that brings a lot of peace. Um, his counsel, his suggestions for life, his ways for living, his um, intentions. Uh, we talked about this in week one, how he knows us so well uh, because he formed us, he made us, he's with us. We can't run from him. We did Psalm 139 where it's basically saying, you just can't go where God won't go. That's not possible. Um, and it's this psalm of like, it feels like the writer is saying he is never free from God, and yet he's never a prisoner of God at the same time. It's this beautiful sort of picture. And, uh, and in that, we get this, he, he's a great counselor and wonderful in counsel because he knows us so well. And um, good counsel brings good peace. That's why we go to counseling, isn't it? You're not going to admit that you go to counseling, I know. But you're like, That's what, that, that is why people go to counseling, Derek. Um, but we go to get you know, some, some peace. And so, um, so we'll talk about that today. The Prince of Peace. Say that, Prince of Peace. Just making sure you're awake. Um, are you ready? What have I said so far? Okay. The, uh, the Hebrew word for peace. Does anyone want to take a shot at it? Shalom. Who said that first? David. Let's give it up for David. Very good. <laughs> uh, let's say the word shalom together. Uh, better than that. Come on. Ah, you're saying peace, peace be with you, so to speak, right? And also with you, that liturgical uh, thing that happens in some church traditions, a beautiful sort of passing around of the peace. Uh, it's a Hebrew word, so it's layered. It has many different sort of nuances and, and, and pieces to it. Um, obviously, it means peace, the absence of conflict and so forth. But there's a deeper meaning to shalom, and that's uh, the meaning of completeness. Like it's, everything's rounded out. Everything is as it should be. There's nothing missing. There's no holes in it. It's not leaking. It's, it's at peace with its intended design. There's an element of fullness. 
a fullness of life. Uh, when you're praying for and seeking shalom, it's not just about, man, I hope things aren't stressful, but it's also about finding fullness, living life to the full. In fact, Jesus said in John 10, 10, uh, as you can see here on the screen, I've come that they may have life and have it to the what? Full. Now, that does not mean you're rock climbing, skydiving, hang gliding, living it to the full, bucket list kind of life. This is a statement about shalom. This is a statement about living life to the fullest degree of its intended design. And so when uh, you're living that kind of life to the full, you're experiencing, um, uh, experiencing that sort of thing. And the great thing about God's peace is that he calls us to seek it, to pursue it, uh, to look for it, and even to bring it to people. Um, Psalm 34, turn from evil and do good, seek peace, like look for it, find it, find where God is working his shalom back into his creation, pursue it, look for it. Uh, The next one, Jeremiah 29, 7, I love this text, seek the peace of the city. We love that because we're in the city. But I love this text more because of the, the setting, these Israelites who were um, they're not slaves or prisoners, but they're held captive in these Babylonian cities, and they just, they're stuck there. But they want to go back to Jerusalem. And so they're kind of living with suitcases in their hands, never putting roots down, never, never really caring or giving a rip about where they live. And they're waiting and waiting for a word from the Lord. And what, what they want to hear from God is, you're free to go back to Jerusalem, but what they hear is something completely different, and that's, I want you to seek the peace of the city where you're living. It goes on to say, I want you to pray for it. Right? I want you to pray for it. And then it says, because if it does well, you're going to do well. Like if, if, if it succeeds, you will succeed. So there's this call to wherever we are to seek that peace, the shalom of God, wherever we are. Does that make sense? Which means logically that shalom, it can come and go. It's not constant in our world. It is constant with God, but it is not constant in our world. Amen? Some days you have, some days are good. Uh, Some days you're at peace. Some days you're sort of like in this, like this is a good day. It's a good week. It's a good month. And then you sort of tank somewhere and it's not so good. So there are times when there is peace in our lives. There is time when there's peace uh, in our families. There's times when there's peace at work. There's times when there's even peace as a nation. But then probably more often than not, it's at unrest. It's not at peace. Look at Luke 2.14. Uh, This is the angel's statement to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. We'll look at this a little bit again on Christmas Eve, but uh, you know this, you know this, right? Glory to God in the highest on earth, what? Peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now, let me um, take us down into a dark place for a moment. Um, This is the announcement of the birth of Jesus, and the promise is... um, that he will bring peace. The struggle is in the promise because, and this is just the reality, Jesus came, he lived, he did what he did. Uh, he was crucified on a cross. They buried him. He raised from the dead, amen. And the world is really no more at peace than it ever was before. And so to a thinking Christian, To someone who engages the scriptures critically, 
you're sort of left to answer this question, really? Because I watch the news and read the papers and, you know, follow the feeds in my phone, and things don't really seem that peaceful. And the promise in the birth announcement of Jesus is that there would be peace. And there is no peace, at least not any more than there was. And then there's this, like, what's the first response to the birth of Jesus? A slaughtering of babies. Bloodshed. Tension. Um, Jesus said something very difficult to hear when he said, I didn't come to bring peace, but the sword. That's just hard to read. What does that mean, right? Um, And so when you read the scriptures and you read about this promise that he's a prince of peace, that he will bring peace on earth uh, to men, it can become a little bit troublesome because at the end of the day, it's still, we're still at unrest. And then there's sort of the dark story of how the church itself through history has been um, sort of a source of conflict. That the church uh, maybe, maybe misinterpreted, I bring the sword. And there have been all kinds of uh, injustices in the name of God. And so it's a little bit of a, I mean, are you with me? I mean, we just have to accept that we live in a world that we live on this side of Jesus in history, but the world is still just sort of running in the same direction. Notice what he says in John 16. This is him speaking to the disciples. He says, I've I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. There's that word. And then he says, in this world you will have what? Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. And all but John, uh, John died an old man on an island in exile. But the rest of the disciples were murdered. And Jesus even said this, if anyone wants to follow me, he will take up his cross. Like, that's just a statement of, well, that doesn't end well. A cross was the symbol of Roman sovereignty and also a symbol of death. And Jesus says to his disciples, there's peace in me, but in this world there's trouble. So in this one verse, we get a nice picture of, okay, God's peace lives alongside and shares space with the troubles of the world for now. At creation, things are as they should be, and then there's this change of the story. And ever since then, the ways of God, ultimately the peace, the shalom of God, it runs side by side with the troubles of the world. And that's, that's where the frustration is. Uh, that's what Paul talks about in Romans when he says, um, well, first, first of all, he talks about the world groans. It's just in this state of, like, pain because it knows what it should be, but it's not. And then he says about himself, he says, I'm doing stuff I know that I shouldn't do, and I'm not doing stuff that I know I should do. And it's this tension because he understands, and we understand this too, that we can go in and out of the ways of God. The prin- and as the Prince of Peace... God is always working to bring that shalom back into our lives and into his creation, into his world. But for now, it's sharing the earth with the ways of the world, the troubles of the world. And so there is hope, of course, that um, all of that will end at some point. That is a promise in the scriptures. We'll look at a text in a moment that promises that. So there is this promise of everything being restored, but for now... 
it's just a very difficult, it's a difficult thing. Um, I want to, if you would, turn to Psalm 46. This is probably one of my favorite uh, psalms that speaks about this tension between the way the world is and the way God is and how we sort of bring the two together and how we find in the midst of sort of struggle and tension the peace of God. And uh, we'll look at this um, last service. For, I always feel bad for first service because it's just like a studio session in here. But um, I, I feel like, I'm, I feel like I just, I'm just going to pull out a few things. It's not a very long psalm. Let me give you uh, some background here. It's, it's just 11 verses. It's divided up into two pieces. There's verses 1 through 7, which is this nice picture of the way the world is. And then there's verses 8 through 11, which is essentially an invitation to trust God um, with his, you know, to trust him in the world that you're living in. So that's kind of how it's divided up. And there are three um, refrains in the song, and they're all basically the same. Verses 1, 7, and 11, they all repeat the same theme, which is basically that God is a refuge. We'll look at that in a moment. So that's kind of the framework uh, of the psalm. It's a confessional psalm, like it was meant and written, uh, and it was meant to be sung in the community. So people would sing this uh, as an announcement of God's strength, uh, as a, it's a song of hope, and uh, so that's kind of where, you know, that's kind of the background of it. But let me just pull out a couple things. Let's look at uh, verse 1. It says, God is our what? Refuge and strength, right? An ever-present help in times of trouble. Um, the word refuge there is, it's pretty interesting. I mean, obviously it means shelter, safety, a place of retreat. Um, but there's a little bit of a history to the word refuge. Look at Joshua chapter 20. It, this is so weird, but just follow it. Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge. I've bold printed that for you. As I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. Isn't the Bible interesting? And so this is the, this is the basics of this uh, God told Moses to designate a number of cities and uh, to designate them cities of refuge, a place of sanctuary, a place of safety. And they're there, and notice the, the, the trauma in this. They're there for people who accidentally or unintentionally kill someone. This is the car wreck where you're the driver and the passenger dies. How do you feel? At that point, horrible. Some people just end their own life. You know, like they just can't deal with what they've done emotionally, spiritually, and even physically. And so the setting for refuge, I mean, refuge is the setting for like the worst of the worst moment in your life. And so God sets up these cities that are there so you can run to them. So that the avenger, who knows who that is, the husband of the deceased, the brother of the deceased, the dad of the deceased, is chasing you down, but you can find safety in these places of refuge. That's why we call, sometimes the, uh, the churches call this room the sanctuary. It was a safe place from the law. It was a safe place from avengers. It was, it was a safe retreat, a haven, a refuge. And so um, it's kind of where we get that. But the word refuge is connected to your worst possible nightmare. And so when the early readers and singers 
and announcers of Psalm 46 would say something like, God is our refuge and strength, that comes with a backstory of great difficulty. They get that. They can think back to this. Among many things, they can remember a refuge is when everything has gone wrong. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense? And then he says, Therefore, uh, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea. In the ancient world, uh, it was thought that the world was uh, stabilized on on, on the mountains. And so signs of disruption uh, would be things like earthquakes, volcanoes, anything where the earth shakes. And they would think, oh, it's tilting. It's falling apart. But he says, even though the world changes and shifts and breaks down, even though the ecology is deteriorating, it says, though its waters roar in verse 3 and foam, uh, though the mountains tremble, he just says, we will not fear. So it's like this, we're, we're, we're well aware of the problems of the world, but we're okay. Uh, verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Speaking of Jerusalem, uh, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. Verse 6, the nations are in uproar. So this is the ancient CNN. Wow, everything is falling apart. The nations are in uproar. There's all kinds of war. All kinds of tension, all kinds of conflict. Kingdoms, it says, totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. And then it ends that section with that same refrain that the congregation would sing. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our, what? Refuge. This is the framework of what we're reading. Refuge, refuge, safety. Verse 8, here's this invitation. Come, behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. Verse 9, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the shields with fire. This is poetry to say it's war, it's, it's involvement in war, it's the reality of war, it's the aftermath of war that causes us to recognize that war itself is futile to accomplish what it is trying to do. It may bring peace for a season, but it is not the Prince of Peace. And the conflict of war, though sometimes necessary, mournfully so, and regrettably so, it does not bring peace, not the peace that God promised. And conflict reminds us not only of the chaos of the world we live in, but it it turns our attention to a hope for stability and God. So the psalmist is being very, very upfront, saying all this conflict, all this tension isn't doing what it's hoped, it hoped it was doing. And then verse 10, you probably know this verse if you uh, are familiar with the scriptures, be still and know that I am God. Does anybody know this verse? Yeah. Now there's a nice personal component here about, yeah, that's a good thing to do, to Sabbath, to stop, to just cease. The translation is cease striving, just stop Stop pushing. But it's not in isolation. It's connected to the verses before. And so primarily what this statement, be still and know that I'm God, is about is stop fighting. Stop conflict. And then there's this 
resurrection statement that I will be exalted among the nations, lifted up. I will be exalted in the earth. And then it ends how it begins. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our what? Refuge. And so again, the psalm is a great, that psalm is a great uh, illustration about how the world that we live in, we recognize the world we live in as a world that is at, at, at unrest. There's tension. And um, oftentimes there, there is no peace. And then there's this struggle with, well, I thought Jesus was to bring the peace. So what is this shalom about? Uh, John 14 says, Jesus speaking, peace I leave with you, peace, my peace I give you. It's a standard, peace be with you. And you say, yeah, that's what this is. But then he expands on that. I do not give to you as the world gives. So Jesus is speaking these words in the setting of basically a Roman empire. And uh, as all empires go, um, peace comes at the, uh, as the result of conflict of bloodshed. And so the peace of Rome uh, was definitely a reality, but it came at the expense of a lot of lives. And so part of this statement is a reference to that. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you peace, but it's not the same kind of peace that you're aware of. It's not peace from, you know, at, the, at the cost of being quite afraid. I do not give to you as the world gives peace. But you can expand that into our own lives. Like how is it that, like some questions to ask uh, yourself when it comes to peace. Um, how do we define peace in our lives? Like what is that? Is it the absence of something or is it the presence of something? That's a good question. Like does peace depend on what I have or what I can get rid of? That's a really good question. Uh, how do we imagine that God is a prince of peace? How does he do that? How does he do this in our lives, right? And um, so those are good questions to sort of wrestle through. And this statement from Jesus, it, it causes us to ask that. Like, I'm giving you peace, but it's not, it's not what you think. It's not how you think that it comes. It's different. It's other than. It's other. And then he says, do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. So all I know about this Again, because sometimes Jesus says things and all you can do is wrestle with them. But what I do know from experience, and I can't chart this on a, on a, a PowerPoint for you, but there are just times in life when I'm surrounded by all kinds of conflict and stress. It, this isn't always normal, but I'm at peace. Do you know what I'm saying? And I can't describe that. I can't like go, well, this is why. Uh, Paul says uh, um, the, the, the peace of God, which transcends all human understanding. Like there's, there is this mysterious, like I'm just at peace with it. And I don't, I, I can't tell you why. I just am. And you probably have had those experiences too. And so there, there is this, it's not the same kind of peace that maybe I think it is, but it comes in a different way at different times and different places. But there is hope. Revelation 21. I do like this. I don't do much from Revelation because it frightens me. <laughs> um, it took me, you know, 10 years to figure out what Ferris Bueller was about. Revelation's pretty tough. 
um, but I have figured it out. So, but this is such a free, I mean, this is, you know, this text, maybe it says he, this is, this is the end of the story. I mean, this is the second advent. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. My son was asking me about this the other day. Will people cry in heaven? I said, I don't, I don't think so. Maybe over joy. I, I don't know. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Isn't that good? I mean, that's what we want. That's what we're after. And then it says for the old order of things. And that's such a statement about the way the world is. The, the present order of things is not this. And there's this hope, this gospel hope of restoration. I love that. I love that. So in closing, this psalm uh, reminds us that for now we live in an unstable world and God's ways, God's intentions, God's designs for life, his kingdom, it runs parallel to the troubles of the world, which means that you and I can go in and out of both. We can just live our lives in both, but it's always there. And it just is a reminder that, um, you know, that God's kingdom for now is simply one of many options for living. For now. One day it won't be. One day there'll be this everybody out of the pool moment and God, you know, establishes his kingdom forever. And therefore, life is a struggle. And please don't take this as a negative thing, but if you're a Christian, try your best to let go of and walk away from the idea that Jesus will make all your troubles go away. He won't do that. Because then what do you need at that point? The story of Job in the scriptures is a nice um, place for us to go to be reminded that you can do everything right and everything wrong happens. It's the tripwire in the whole theology of like, if I just... If I'm just faithful, things work out. So just try and walk away from that. And try and redefine peace and how God brings it. And then go from there. And this psalm is in touch with the world and with the world to come, which I like. I love that. In closing, back to Jesus. He came, he died. He resurrected, and the world is still a mess. And so, I don't know if this will mean anything or not, but let me just say it this way. Jesus, at the end of the day, did not eradicate evil. He didn't. Because it's still here. It's still happening. It's still running strong. He did not eradicate evil. However, he did become its victim. And to die on a cross, the symbol of Roman sovereignty, nobody lives through that. Nobody walks away from that. It's the final statement from the empire to anyone who wants to push back against it that you will not win. He absorbed the evils of what happens when people are in power and what happens when we live other than what God intended for us to do. And he took that on. He absorbed it. The scriptures say he became sin on our behalf. 
He absorbed the evil. He became its victim for us, for you, for me. And that doesn't totally make sense, so just run with it. But the resurrection, other than just being awesome, is a statement that I can be evil's victim, I can take on the sins of the world, and I can even die a brutal death at the hands of a sovereign empire, and it doesn't win. And among all sorts of messages that the resurrection sends us, one of them is that God has power over death, that God has power over evil, and that God, in the, in the end, is everlasting. He is mighty and Savior. I mean, isn't that encouraging? And so this Advent season, this Christmas season, is, uh, I mean, it's so much fun. I mean, just to, just to just rewind and push towards the birth and, and remember maybe some things from childhood and just it's so exciting. Um, but we need to be careful not to sterilize it and turn it into this, like, thing. Uh, my neighbors came out the other day, and, you know, they had their drinks in their hand and their camera. I said, where are you going? And they said, we're running across the street to the live nativity. And I said, oh, the one where Joseph wears Nikes? <laughs> Mary has glasses and a watch. It's amazing. <laughs> but it's just very, like, it's very approachable and sterile and probably not anything like the real thing. But apart from that, just the reason for the birth of Jesus, born to die, right? Advent really is it's kind of a dark time. We have to wrestle with the reality that Jesus in the end absorbed the brokenness of me and of you and of the world. And thank God for that. And when we take communion every week, which we'll do in just a second, um, there's so many messages in that. If you'll bring up the communion slide Uh, Paul says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, We we say this like this uh, occasionally, but let me just repeat it. Communion is an act of uh, history and future. Um, You eat the bread and you're proclaiming something that has happened. The death of Christ, the burial, the resurrection but it's also this thing we do until he comes. The second advent, the Revelation 21, everybody out of the pool, we're fixing the playground up, everything's getting put back together, we're done. And until then, we, we do this little ritual of eating some bread and drinking some juice and reenacting the life of Jesus and the promise of his return. And so communion today, really, the focus must be a recognition that the world is broken and that we live in it. We're part of it too. And yet we have this hope that things will change. And until then, we rely on the peace of God which passes all understanding. And we just do this week after week, day after day, until he comes. Amen? So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to move to one of the four tables in the room. Uh, And then when you're done, you can uh, just return to your seats and we'll sing uh, a song or two on the way out. Uh, Let's pray.
<clears throat> Father, thank you for um, just the promise of peace. <clears throat> and at times, God, it's, uh, it's tough because we go through seasons uh, where there just isn't any. And um, we struggle to find peace in all kinds of places and people and things. And um, so, God, just help us to recognize um, that you bring a different kind of, of peace to our lives and that you somehow uh, breach the circumstances that can cause so much stress. Um, so God, we, I pray for those in the room today that just need the encouragement that despite, um, in spite of any sort of brokenness or waywardness or struggles with sin, that uh, there's a peace in knowing that you are always their father, that you, they can always come back to you, that you haven't gone anywhere and that you are everlasting in that position. Uh, father, I pray for those who are just in the middle of uh, tremendous unrest with family, with work, uh, with neighbors. Uh, I just pray for them. I pray that you somehow, again, in a mysterious way, bring peace. God, I pray for our world, which is constantly in and out of peace and conflict, that um, the only prayer, as I get older, the only prayer is that you just come quickly because it, it doesn't seem to be changing. But until then, Father, we eat this bread and we drink this juice uh, as, a, as a reminder and also an announcement of who you are and what you've done and what you will do. And so we, uh, we take a few moments and focus on that. And I just pray that you fill this room with your spirit of encouragement and joy and peace. And it's in your name that I pray. And everyone said, Amen.